All right. I wish I could whistle. Anyone? Anyone whistle? I can. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So for the next two talks before lunch, um, uh, welcome all. My name is Susanna Nagy, and um, and I'm a um, ID faculty member um, just north of here in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, and it's great to be back, and it's great to see all of, of your faces and some familiar faces as well who have been here time and time again. Um, so for the next 45 minutes, I am going to focus on the HCV... Um, AASLD IDSA HCV guidelines. So how many folks in this room have know that the guidelines exist? Okay. And how many of you have actually accessed the website at least once? Okay. So a lot of you have used this. So the idea behind this was not necessarily just to show you and read to you what the guidelines say, because you obviously know, but it's more to give you some insight onto why some of the recommendations are made. What's the data behind some of these recommendations? Some of the recommendations are different than what the FDA recommends, for example, um, and, and because I think as a whole, a guideline shouldn't just um, you know, reproduce uh, what is in a package insert. It's really meant to provide guidance above and beyond the package insert for that drug. And so hopefully going through this will, will be helpful for folks and not too remedial in that sense. Um, it's 45 minutes, it's a long time, and I think if we have, we have a 10-minute Q&A at the end, and it would be great if you, if you guys want to ask questions during, right? Because we're going to move through a lot of different things. We're going to move through treatment, we're going to focus on some special populations, we're going to focus on the recent um, uh, change around HBV testing and reactivation of Hep B in patients with HCV. So um, hopefully we'll get through all of it, but, but I know I talk fast. Um, I was actually born in Georgia. I know no one will believe me. Uh, I actually was born in Athens. Um, but when I moved north, my speech became very rapid. Um, and then I drink coffee, and it becomes even faster. So if I start going too fast, slow me down. I try to make myself slow down, but it's hard. I get very excited um, because I think this is a lot of fun. So anyway, we'll get started, but please feel free to ask questions because we basically have 55 minutes with Q&A, and I think if we could do Q&A during this, it's a lot more fun and, and more interactive. All right. This is my disclosures. Um, so I am a co-chair on the guidelines, so I've divested myself um, personally from all conflicts as of October of 2015, but I do participate in research, and so my institution receives research funding from multiple groups who are involved in, H in HCV. All right, so learning objectives you guys know. Um, so again, focusing mostly on the guidelines, studies supporting that, and then treatment in special populations. So take a big step back. I think you, 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 really, you, you heard this, but I think just to reiterate the point, why do we want to treat and cure HCV? Because ultimately this does lead to um, improved clinical outcomes for patients. Less liver cancer, less liver failure, less need for liver transplantation. I think that's been proven time and time again. The data is all as it relates to what I would say is a virologic surrogate for clinical cure, and that is SVR, sustained virologic response, right? SVR12 UCUs, ultimately that is a virologic surrogate for cure, and we know cure is, this is true, this is real, you heard from Dr. Sag why this happens, and I think it's really important to use that word, cure, to your patients, because they totally get it. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and they get very excited about that, that possibility, right? And treatment is recommended for all patients with chronic hepatitis C unless they have um, some other terminal illness. So, you know, there are plenty of patients that we were not able to treat prior to the DAA era because they were just too sick. Um, patients with severe, uh, uh, you know, lung disease or uh, cardiac disease. I can remember in the interferon days, 
telling a patient they just couldn't get treatment because we could make their lung disease worse or their heart disease worse. But many of these patients can maybe have a life expectancy that's three, four, five years out. And they, we believe those patients should be treated as long as, um, as long as they can go through the treatment and they're dedicated and they want to do it. Um, and so, so this is very important to think about because I think many of us have been biased towards seeing patients who have had a stroke, for example, and now it's a year later, um, but they've had a stroke, and that seems like a really bad clinical outcome. But that patient, you know, it may be now living independently or with help, but, but they deserve consideration, and these are patients we never considered before. And the other point to make, especially to this group, I think you all recognize this very, very well, is that HIV, HCV patients are treated exactly the same. Um, there are few examples where that is not true at this point, exactly the same as someone who doesn't have HIV. And the primary consideration around how they're different is, is specific to the fact that they are on antiretrovirals. And antiretrovirals and DAAs do have drug interactions. You're going to hear this extensively from Dr. Kaiser after this talk. Um, and, but really shy of that, there's, there's, there's minimal variation within the guidelines around this group. And I will highlight one specific section where, where there is a difference, where we do say HIV patients may deserve something slightly different. Um, so we can have our cake and eat it too. That's the beauty. So testing, there's a section, I think you guys have all seen the guidelines, so there's, test, there's, there's sections around, around screening, testing, linkage to care, around testing and monitoring once you're making a decision to start someone on therapy. Then there are sections that are treatment naive, treatment experience, and then special groups like HIV, uh, decompensation, liver transplant, renal disease, acute, right? So I'm not going to go into great detail, this just highlights um, some of uh, the recommendations around what needs to be done. And I, I will simply say that HCV genotyping is still required, and we'll talk about why that is in particular. We are very close to the potential of not requiring genotyping, but with our current regimens, there is still some nuance around particular genotypes and even subtypes. And so for now, genotyping and subtyping is still recommended and required. Um, cirrhosis is a big one. You've heard about how do you diagnose cirrhosis. Why is this still important? It's still important for two reasons, as you heard. One is that once you have severe fibrosis, you need to be managed as someone who has severe fibrosis for a prolonged period of time. We used to say for life. Maybe that's going to be true. Um, maybe at some point, 10 years after cure, we'll be able to say that patients can be released from the clinic if their repeat testing of fibrosis says that they have had regression and resolution um, of cirrhosis. But for now, it's very important that these patients stay in care, continue to get liver-related care. In addition, as we'll see and we'll highlight, patients with cirrhosis do often require something more for some of the regimens. They may, may, may require ribavirin. They may require a prolonged length of treatment. And so for that reason, we still have to think about that in terms of, in terms of making decisions. And then really important to recognize is that once you know that patient has cirrhosis, you have to step back and classify them. Are they child pu A or are they child pu B and C? So you have to get in the habit with every cirrhotic of calculating that every six months. And the reason this is really important from a DAA perspective is protease inhibitor-based regimens are contraindicated in people who are child pu B and C. So you do not want to choose a regimen that has a protease inhibitor in it. Um, a, a, DA, a DAA protease inhibitor if that patient has decompensated disease. Now, we all think of decompensation as someone who's walking in with ascites, et cetera, but the truth is there are many child pubs who look great and you can be fooled. Um, and I think the other important point is you don't want to use labs that are over a year old if this patient's liver disease has progressed. So make sure you have labs that are updated and that you calculate that child pu in real time before you're starting therapy. 
We're going to hear a lot from Dr. Wiles about RAPS, RASs, RAVs. We'll see which one he chooses to, to, to use. The FDA uses RAPS, but basically resistance. This group, um, ID and HIV providers, this is pretty natural for you to think about. Um, HIV antibody testing, obviously, for a hep C patient. And then the hep B testing, where the recommendation is a surface antigen, a core antibody, and a surface antibody. I think in HIV world, we're very used to this as a whole. But for some groups, this testing is not necessarily um, uh, as extensive when they're looking for HBV. Yes, ma'am. Correct. Do DNAs on those? It's a great question. So you're a very smart lady. Uh, so 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 this is a big a new change, and I think there are some people who are unaware that this has happened. Even though so the even though the ASOD and I say put out announcements and press releases about this. So this is a critical issue. So 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 testing around HBV. This is a new recommendation, and this is something where we will likely continue to learn. But I can tell you where the guidance is. The guidance released this what three weeks ago, maybe a recommendation for HBV testing specifically around HCV patients receiving DAAs. So what's the deal here, right? So hep B and hep C compete for cellular machinery. We know, for example, that your number one, one of the predictors of hep C clearance, natural clearance, is if you're already infected with hep B because it's hard for that virus to get in and integrate now and, and use that cellular machinery when a hep B virus is already using it, right? And it is also very common for someone who already has hep C, for someone to be chronically infected with hep B, but to have very low-lying le levels and essentially inactive hep B uh, because of the hep C has already taken up um, you know, so it's like squatting. There's no squatting allowed. Once someone's in, the other one can't get in. The problem is, especially with hepatitis B, as you all know, Hep B, you heard from Dr. Sag about the integration, about entering the nucleus. Hep B enters the nucleus. While it doesn't physically integrate, it's caught, it leaves that CCC DNA, and that is never gone. So this comes up a lot clinically when you take a patient who is even core antibody positive, right? They don't have detectable Hep B DNA, but that DNA is in there. You give that person the what I call the rituximab bomb, right, for their lymphoma or their severe rheumatoid arthritis, and they reactivate Hep B. It comes back, and it's mean and it's nasty. So this same phenomenon can happen in a patient, specifically a surface antigen-positive patient, who looks like they're inactive. So how does, how does the ASLD define inactive hepatitis B? Who, so if you take a patient who... We all do HIV, a lot of HIV care, and in HIV, Hep B, everyone gets treated for their Hep B, right? But if they don't have HIV, not everyone with Hep B gets, needs treatment, right? So if they have inactive, immune inactive Hep B, how is that defined? Nor liver enzymes that are normal. So remember that the AASLD says a normal liver enzyme for a patient, who, for, a, for, for a man is less than 30, and for a woman is less than 19, right? So... If, if it's not greater than two times, different limits of that. So for a man, 60. For a woman, whatever 19 times 2 is. I don't know. I was an engineer, but I can't do math anymore. Um, so so if, if, if you meet that criteria and you have a particular viral load, the viral load is driven by E antigen status. If you're E antigen negative, viral load is less than 2,000. Once you get above 2,000 with abnormal liver enzymes, you need treatment. Okay. If you're E antigen positive, it's 20,000. So that's how you would normally treat a hep B patient, right? So those patients should be getting treated, but there are 
are plenty of those patients with Hep B and Hep C who don't meet criteria for Hep B therapy. Um, and now you're about to, so you've got Hep B that's not being controlled uh, by anything other than the host immune system. You're going to now take away that Hep C that's been actually helping control the replication of the Hep B in the hepatocyte. And now it provides the opportunity for the Hep B to come back and come back bad. So you see here. This paper, reactivation of Hep B during successful Hep C treatment with SOF and SIM. So why didn't this happen in the interferon days? Well, the truth is, I mean, I think there are reports of this happening in the interferon days, but does anyone have an idea why maybe this wasn't as big of a deal in the interferon days? Yeah, so how do we treat Hep B when, you know, you've got resistance, you can't take, you know, a nuke? You give them interferon. Interferon's a great Hep B drug, right? So in a sense, you were treating the Hep B and the Hep C at the same time, and now we're not. So the problem is we start doing this, and, and, and there were several case reports. They're over a year old now, but several case reports of pretty scary things happening. In this case, there were several cases reported. Um, uh, but the first one that happened for this group was a surface antigen-positive patient, a clear high-risk patient. And that patient ended up having a pretty significant flare. And I think it was, some of this is just about you have to recognize this interaction. And when you take the hep C away, these patients can flare. And what do you do about it? Who's the highest risk group? I would argue it's pretty similar to rituximab, right? And, and, and you guys probably get these calls about a rituximab patient. They're hep B surface antigen, but they don't meet criteria. What do you do with them? So the highest risk patient is the surface antigen positive patient with active viremia, right? That patient's going to be very high risk for flare. Now, if you know they have it, you can monitor for it, um, or you could just put them on a nuke, right? So like in Tecavir or TDF tenofovir, um, TAF tenofovir will be approved by the FDA, presumably for the treatment of Hep B come December, um, which is when it should come through because it was submitted over six months ago or nine months ago. Um, so you can either monitor those patients if they don't meet clear criteria based on the 2,000, 20,000 elevated you know, liver enzymes, as I mentioned, or you can just put them on empiric therapy. If they were getting rituximab, you just put them on a nuke, right? Most of us, I think, would say we would just put them on a nuke because the risk is so high. Maybe this isn't as high a risk as rituximab because it's a pretty high risk with rituximab, um, but the risk is clear and the risk is there. So a surface antigen positive, DNA positive patient, clearly high risk. You either monitor them every four weeks for elevations in liver enzymes and DNA, or you just put them on a nuke through the course of therapy for probably another three to six months post. Because the other thing about DNA or HEPI reactivation is it doesn't always happen on therapy. I think in this case it actually happened during. But it can still flare post. So usually it's three to six months post the end of that course of therapy. Okay, And this is what the AASLD guideline says. Um, so, so that's a high-risk group. So what about people that are, for example, surface antigen positive but DNA negative? They are still a high-risk group. Positive surface antigen, regardless of DNA, active viremia, is a high-risk group. So if you have them, you can either, the, what the guidelines say is, treat them if they meet clear criteria. Otherwise, monitor them every four weeks. Okay? And you have to monitor that, those liver enzymes and the DNA, you know, into six months post the end of your DEA treatment, because that's still a risk period. Does that make sense? So then you get to the next group. So what about people that are core antibody positive, surface antibody positive? Those people are the lowest risk group, okay? So those people really, I just don't, no report has occurred in that patient population, okay? But then you get the group in the middle. And the group in the middle is I'm surface antigen negative. I'm 
may be DNA negative, although some of those people can have low-lying DNA, but I'm core antibody positive, okay? So I, and, 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 my, and my surface antibody is negative, my surface antigen is negative. We know the majority of those people d d cleared their surface antigen because they developed a surface antibody, but that surface antibody titer has waned. The problem is those people are higher risk than someone who has an active positive surface antibody and a positive core antibody. So in terms of the stratus, it's surface antigen positive, clearly high risk regardless of DNA, right? Surface antibody positive, core antibody positive, clearly low risk, not much to worry about. It's these cores that are kind of confusing. And to be fair, this case, I believe it's this case, is the one that ended up with fulminant activation and a liver transplant, and this scared the heck out of people. And this person, someone correct me if I'm wrong, was a core antibody-only patient. This patient's surface antigen was negative. I, I don't know that they, I, I think their DNA was also negative, actually. Does anyone, I mean, I'm pretty sure their DNA was also negative. So this is a scary case, right? But this is also an exceptionally rare case. Um, to my knowledge, this is the only case that we've heard of, and hundreds of thousands of people have been treated with DAAs, right? How common is a positive isolated core antibody in the setting of Hep C infection? It's about a third of patients. So I'll give you that there are two studies, I referenced them right here. Wang et al. 2016, this is a group from China that reported on their real world cohorts of DAAs, right, in, 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 in Asia, very high rates of hepatitis B. So out of Almost about 300 patients in their real-world cohort, only 10 had an active positive surface antigen, okay? 40% had an isolated core antibody. And actually a significant number of them had low-level hep B DNA. They looked at those patients and they said, how many of these patients reactivated in the setting of an all-oral DAA therapy, okay? Three of the 10 that were surface antigen positive, none of the 120 or 40 who were what we call a cult hep B infection, um, which is a positive core and detectable hep B DNA, okay? That's a pretty good number, okay? That says that these patients are exceptionally low risk. That being said, maybe it isn't zero. So take another step back. Where did this all come from? The FDA, a week or two after this came out in the ASLD IDC guidelines, also put out their warning, okay? Um, and in th their warning, they have 24 cases, and three of them would meet criteria for a cult Hep B. Positive core, positive DNA, okay? So that's four total, I guess. If you add this person, it's five um, out of hundreds of thousands of patients, okay? So where the guidelines came in was to say, you have to know those people are at risk. They're low risk, but they're not zero risk. They're higher risk than someone with a positive surface antibody, core antibody, right? And you should just monitor these patients with liver enzymes and DNA, right? And I would even say liver enzymes, although frequently DNA bumps higher before liver enzymes become positive. And, um, but every study that's ever looked at monitoring, and a lot of this has been done in the rituximab setting, monitoring, if you're monitoring patients and you, every four weeks and you catch it, patients do very well. Mon in the rituximab world and doing this, there's plenty of evidence that this is an appropriate way of doing this, that you don't have to empirically treat everyone with a hep B nuke. Does that make sense? So where the guidelines come is positive surface antigen, detectable DNA, treat based on the hep B guidelines, um, and or it's your decision, and or you can empirically treat if it makes you uncomfortable. I don't think that's the wrong thing to do, to be honest with you, um, or just monitor them. Surface antibody, core, core antibody positive, you know, 
Don't, don't worry about those folks. And then the isolated cores, monitor them and do it out to six months after end of treatment, okay? And if you see a bump in liver enzymes, you've got it, you know, you get that DNA, you prove it, you put them on a nuke, they'll, and they'll do just fine. Um, so that's where the guidelines stand. So let's see if we have questions around that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, every four weeks. Every four weeks. Yes, that's exactly right. And again, anyone on the guideline committee where I'm saying this wrong, you let me know. About treatment, about treatment. But we do say that testing every four weeks is appropriate. Yes. But around treatment, around treatment, about what you do, because we made the recommendation that if they're substance agent positive, you should treat per the DNA for the Hep B guidelines. Um, we can't make a recommendation around treatment for those people, right? That 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 empirically putting them on a nuke is going to do you any good because the numbers are so few. Yes. Is the risk low if you have co-infected patients already on a treatment? Yeah. Right. You mean like a HIV Hep B patient? Yeah, yeah. If they're already on a nuke, if they're already on TDF, tenofovir, TAF, tenofovir, um, you know, or or entecavir for some reason because they can't be on a TDF or TAF containing regimen because those are the two standards of care, right? But remember, entecavir does induce or does select out for the M184V mutation in HIV patients, so you can never use it without active HIV drug on board. Those patients are fine. Right. This is really relevant to a patient who is not already on a happy active nuke. For antibody and surface antibody positive, you should not even follow their LFTs. So you're going to follow their LFTs as part of standard of care, uh, but there's not been a single case reported of a surface antibody, surface antibody core antibody positive case. So we do not, again, guideline folks, correct me if I'm wrong, we do not make a recommendation about screening in those people or, or, or about monitoring in those people. Yes. Uh, great, great question. So yes, you do. You just put them on a happy active nuke, okay? And you absolutely continue treatment. You, and, and you know, so so yes, that's a great question. So is that? Am I, do, do, do folks under, is this clear? Where's Dr. Ward? Dr. Ward, did I answer your questions? So, <laughs> of course not. Positive, uh, you, you, you monitor them regardless of their DNA status. Correct. Correct. That's right. Because some of these cases were, again, very few. Um, through the FDA, the FDA report, three patients would have met that criteria. Um, and then there's this one case here, um, and uh, and uh, in the in the um, in the Chinese cohort, uh, their definition was they had to have I think a positive DNA, a core antibody, core positive positive DNA, um, and then the group Sokowski et al. This was an interesting one because this was a clinical trial where surface antigen was excluded, and so these were they were people that had a positive core, and I think they looked at all comers, all positive cores, and again not a single case out of a. a 120 to 150 patients. So this is a very rare event. Um, I think the problem is, is it, is it isn't zero risk, and it's more about knowledge, looking, monitoring, and knowing what to do about it when you find it, which is basically putting that patient on a nuke. Does it? Um, 
Yes. So, I mean, this is the, so the, uh, the, the most obvious thing here is one, it seemed as though people were, first of all, not checking for hep B status in people with hep C, which the CDC has been recommending maybe longer than I've, I don't know, been alive. I'm not sure. No, probably not. That's probably not true. I'm definitely getting older. Um, so, but for a long time, right? But what we recognized was people kind of weren't doing that even though that's standard of care. So that's number one. And when you find someone who is not immune, without us representing anybody, you should vaccinate them. I do think there's a variation on what people do around isolated core antibody, but the majority of us, and we can ask for a show of hands among the faculty, what do I do? I vaccinate those people. I actually mainly try to booster them and see if they booster, because I think there is increasing data from the MAX cohort and other groups that says that these people are more likely to be people who had a surface antibody that waned over time. Less likely to be a positive surface antigen, right, that waned over time. So I I advocate for vaccine in those people, um, and a lot. That's what that's what we've been doing for a while in our practice. Um, is, is is we identify these folks, we vaccinate them, we make sure they booster, and then and then we and then we we treat them for their Hep C. So um, so that's something that we've done. But I could ask for a show of hands in the faculty. How many of the faculty that are here um, vaccinate core antibody positive patients? So one. HIV. Yes. HIV. Yeah, HIV. So not Hep C. You don't, okay, so you don't necessarily. Isn't it a risk factor uh, if they're an MSM? That's my primary. Oh, yeah, 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 they should be vaccinated. So I think this gets to the core. The core people is some people believe that those people are probably immune already and that they'll booster just fine. Some people, I think HIV, making the point that those patients, maybe from an immune perspective, are a little higher risk. You take a step back and say that, you know, patients that are, renal, that are, that are end-stage renal disease already get followed by titer, and once their titer drops below 10, you booster them. Maybe you should be doing that for HIV patients anyway. So I think that's where in HIV patients, it's more consistent. Outside of HIV patients and hep C mono, some people do it, some people don't. My practice has been to still booster those patients. If I'm giving them DA therapy specifically because of this, and I've been doing this, I think from when this first case report happened, um, because this came up on some of the VA scan echo calls, so I think people were aware of this case well before it ever got published. Um, but, uh, so, so there is a variation. I think you have to kind of pick where you fall, but, um, but, uh, but these people often will booster, uh, because they did have a surface antibody and it's just boostering that memory, right? The, I have a question. Wait, there was actually, just to go in order, you had a question there in the green. So this is the other thing that we said that, that, that I think we kind of tried to provide some guidance on, which is. If, they, if you put them on it and they didn't meet criteria, but you're putting them on it, then there, you could potentially, after six months post-treatment, withdraw. The problem with withdrawal, even if they didn't meet criteria the first time, but you're doing it because you're curing their hep C, is a risk of flare. So, so it's okay to withdraw, especially if they're E antigen negative, for example, right? Um, with the presumption they'd go back to still being an immune and active patient, but you have to be aware that withdrawal, whether they were immune and active or active before, could put them at risk of flare. And as long as you follow those liver enzymes and if it flare, flare put them back on, then, then you're okay. But this is where I think we had a lot of discussion about this as well, because you're having some assumption of risk. If they meet criteria for treatment and just it hadn't been recognized before, then those people should stay on per the guidelines, right? So that, that, that's a pretty straightforward one. It's a great question. Yes, and then... Um, I just wanted to make a comment that's actually a patient there in the group of Yes. 
This one. Absolutely. The viral load. Yes. So that is a great point. This is something that actually came up earlier in the discussion. The guidelines also say that if a patient has significant liver disease, um, then they should be treated regardless of their viral load, their liver enzymes. And most of these patients with hep C, they have significant liver disease, so the vast majority should be treated anyway. That's exactly right. And the guidelines the hep clearly say that severe liver disease should be treated regardless of that. So that's a, that's a great point. So for the sake of time, I'm going to try to move along. You had a question? Yeah, I just want to be clear. If I have more antibody positive, I should go ahead and give a booster dose? Vaccine, vaccine? So I think some people, again, you see the faculty is split. Some people would argue there's a benefit to that. You give one shot, four weeks later you check and see if their surface antibody is now detectable um, because it can wane over time, especially if you're going into hep C treatment and there may be some benefit. That is not evidence-based, um, but that is what some people do in their practice. You saw two of us do that in all patients. Um, three of us do it only in HIV. So it's a, it's a balance, right? There are some faculty who would say, I don't do that. There's no evidence that benefits those patients because the general belief is that if they were to get exposed, that they, they should be immune. The problem is, right, that we've now seen cases of those patients who flare. So, um, and, and since surface antibody positive folks don't have are the lowest risk, it seems like there should be some benefit to that. But that's not evidence-based. And, that, and the guidelines don't make that recommendation. All right, so for the sake of time... Oh, no, I was just going to say there's a hefty outbreak amongst young drug users in Maine that was recently publicized. Uh -huh. So for young drug users, there's a possibility of a hefty HIV in addition to reinfection of HIV. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yes, Ken. Sorry, just one more comment. So our practice is actually to test HPV DNA for all those patients. Yep. So that's in, an, that's in a co-infected patient, an HIV patient? I'm sorry? In an HIV patient, or do you double dose in HCV mono as well? So mono is less clear. Yeah, okay. Right. Right, but no, I, I think the point that, I mean, just to reiterate that point, in an HIV patient, the only dose you, you should ever give um, is a double dose, right? That's the standard of care, yeah. All right, so... You know, we're not going to get through everything, but hopefully this has hashed out what is probably a critically important point. Um, so I'm going to keep moving. And, and, and I have that because of my Q&A. When does my Q&A period end? And I just broke that. Okay, so I have to alumni thing. All right, so we're good. We're good. All right. So we're going to kind of go through a case. A 53-year-old patient co-infected on dolutegravir, bacavir, and lamivudine. 
who has suppressed HIV and CD4 count, never received therapy for HCV. He does not have cirrhosis um, or severe fibrosis. He's a 1B, normal kidneys, and his RNA is 2.3 million. This is a question. What is the recommended length of treatment? Is it 6, 8, sorry, number 2 is 8, 3 is 12, 16, or 24? So a 1B, non-serotic, hep C treatment naive, HIV patient with a viral load of 2 point something million. Length of treatment. Oh, sorry about that. I was like, I don't get any music? What's up with that? <laughs> All right. So great. So you guys passed this test overwhelmingly. 12 weeks is the right answer. And we'll talk about why that is, because I see some folks did consider the eight-week option, but in an HIV patient, that is not recommended per the guidelines. So this is just to show you that if you have a patient who's treatment naive, um, genotype 1 without cirrhosis, the treatment length is 12 weeks. There is no eight-week option here. And then there is uh, an alternative regimen um, option of 16 weeks for the albosvir grisoprovir if a patient has an S5A resistance as a 1A. But as a whole, non-serotic, 12 weeks, and you have lots of choices. And how you make these choices may have to do with what the insurer will let you have. It may have to do with whether they have normal kidneys, um, what their liver tests look like, um, and, uh, and or what their drug interactions are, right? Are they on a PPI? Are their HIV medicines compatible? That's how you make um, those decisions. So this is just to kind of bring home the point of the eight-week eight week issue. So as you all know, post hoc analyses of the study and the lead soft treatment showed that if you get eight weeks with lead soft versus 12 and a treatment-naive non-serotic, which is the only population this would apply to, right, you have more failures if you get eight weeks. Now, post-hoc analyses said if you use a cutoff of 6 million as a baseline viral load, then you can even the playing field and identify people who can get away with eight weeks, right? Uh, pretty simple thing. Does this apply in HIV patients? The answer is no, thanks to Dr. Wiles' uh, data. These are patients who were treatment naive serotic. There were some patients included who were like treatment experience and whatnot, but I pulled out those folks to reflect this. Eight weeks um, uh, failed in HIV patients. In the end, this was determined to not be a Darun, uh, an exposure issue, right? This was not a PK issue, which is some, some people thought initially. And so in HIV patients, the only data that we have says that you should not do this in an HIV-infected patient. In addition, um, we have a lot of real-world data now, right, around eight weeks of therapy. The TRIO cohort, the TARGET, the GECKO from Europe says that if you do this in HCV mono-infected patients, you can achieve excellent cure rates, which is true when a provider sitting in a clinic makes a decision on how to treat their patient, which is exactly what the FDA recommended and is exactly what the guidelines recommend. We do not recommend um, kind of an, an eight-week regimen, but we do say that providers can make that decision based on the multiple predictors of failure and or risk, right? And, and is a viral load enough? That's the question that you have to ask yourself. The other point that I'll bring home is, in Target, one patient has HIV. So that's pretty overwhelming data. And in the gecko, more patients. But again, we're looking at a total of um, you know 29 patients with HIV. So again, we're, we're in a, da a relative data-free zone. The randomized control trial says it doesn't, it's not a good idea. And, and generally, that's where, where we fall on this. Um, I think there are some other issues in the VA, which represents African-American patients much better than any other real-world cohort, says that if you give eight weeks to an African-American patient, they are more likely to fail. That is important to think about. 
Um, women are more likely to get eight weeks, and they're more likely to do well with eight weeks. And so, so this is a pretty important issue, especially when resistance is 65% when those patients fail. And salvage regimens are very difficult to get your hands on. And as of now, we have minimal data about how to salvage these patients. So if you look at this data from the ION3, the, ion the 8 versus 12 week study, a different way, and you don't look at viral load, women are more likely to do well with eight weeks. African Americans are not. So this brings home that point again. And IL-28, which no one checks anymore. But the point of this is, you heard this great summary from Dr. Sag about multiple predictors. This is not as simple as a viral load, okay? And, and some baseline predictors matter. If you look at shortening therapy, some of those historic baseline factors come back to haunt you, okay? And shortening therapy is important from a cost perspective, but I would argue that if prices of drugs were, costs or, or, you know, or were priced by cure and not by length of treatment, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. Um, so if you look at the ION3 specifically based on race, uh, black versus non-black, a patient who's African-American who gets eight weeks is more likely to fail. That's all there is to it, right? So another interesting thing is if you go back and look at this now based on NS5A resistance, which you're going to hear about from Dr. Wiles, in fact, NS5A resistance also predicts failure. So it may be race. It may be viral load. It may be sex. It may be NS5A, but I can tell you that it's probably not as simple as a viral load, right? Maybe it's also HIV. Um, and so this is complex. And generally speaking, as a clinician, our goal is to treat the patient and cure them sitting in front of us, right? And I do believe, given the concerns around salvage right now, uh, that you have to get it right the first time, okay? We don't have much room for error. So what does the guideline say? Um, it says, based on available data, Shortening treatment to less than 12 weeks is not recommended in HIV patients, African-American patients, or those with the less favorable IL-28. I'm not encouraging you to test for IL-28, but that's where the data stands, okay? For others, it should be done at the discretion of the provider, not based on insurance um, dictating how this works. And I think there is a question as to whether or not we should be adding NS5A resistance um, to that, right, based on uh, recent data. All right, so what if the patient had cirrhosis? What is the recommended length of therapy for this patient who is a 1B, right, treatment-naive patient? So if he has cirrhosis, which he didn't before, does it change the length of treatment? So what role does, uh, does that play? So everyone says 12 weeks. So treatment-naive patients, genotype 1, compensated cirrhosis, you see here, that now, as opposed to all regimens offer 12-week options, that is no longer true, right? For that reason, the guideline has said at, on this past round, we have enough 12-week regimens now that we can really, really start pulling this apart, right? So while efficacy is the same, you can cure. All of these regimens will offer over 95% chance of cure. 12 weeks really is optimal compared to 24, right? So the ones in white are the recommended and the ones in light blue are the ones that are alternative um, for multiple reasons, but the longer you take a drug, the more side effects you might have, the harder it is to adhere, the more follow-up you have, the more testing, the more everything, right? So the more cost all in all. So this was a big step, I think, for the guidelines in terms of really trying to pare this down because I know it's hard to look at six options for every single thing um, and starting to really help you as a clinician make these decisions. So, also just a reminder that alternative regimens are those that are effective. As I said, you could use any of them and, and cure a patient. 
but based um, on potential disadvantages, limitations in certain patient populations, less supporting data. Um, there's a recommended regimen and an alternative, but an alternative may be the best option for your patient, and that's okay. We're not saying don't do it. There is a don't do it box in the guidelines. Um, you know, make sure you look at that, but we're not saying don't do it. We're just saying that there is a difference. Um, and as a clinician, it's your choice to make. So now we go from treatment naive to treatment experience. So what about treatment experience? What if they previously failed PEG-RIBA, if anyone has those patients out there anymore? What if they failed PEG-RIBA? It actually looks exactly the same, right? So it's not so much whether they're treatment naive or PEG-RIBA experience, right? It's whether or not they have cirrhosis, okay, from the PEG-RIBA perspective. All right, so which regimen does not offer a 12-week option without ribavirin if they're PEG-RIBA experience with 1B and cirrhosis? Remember, PEG-RIBA experience without cirrhosis, everyone gets 12. But when you start moving into the cirrhosis again, just like in treatment naive, you start getting some people who, some regimens that have to be um, longer than, than 12 weeks or have to add ribavirin. So, so which regimen does not offer a 12-week option without ribavirin? Is it the Elbisberger-Zopravir, Soft, the Prod, or the Softbell? So I'll start this now. So does not offer. I know that's a hard, like, test question to read. Good thing I don't make tests <laughs> on a regular basis. All right, so good. So this, I think, will be very helpful. Which one does not offer a 12-week option? Remember, this patient was a 1B. This is definitely a little bit of kind of picking and really honing in on this. So a 1B patient who is treatment experienced can get 12 weeks um, if, they have, if, they're a, if they're a 1B with the Elvis Virgil-Zoprovir regimen, with the PROD regimen, right, and with the soft valve regimen. The lead soft regimen is actually the one where if you're gonna give 12 weeks, you have to add ribavirin. So the answer to that question was the lead soft regimen, okay? For a 1B with cirrhosis, this one can give you 12, this one can give you 12, and this one, but this one has to add ribavirin. You cannot use ribavirin, but you have to get 24 weeks. So again, you can see how cirrhosis, this is why cirrhosis is so important to understand, right? All right, so for the sake of time, you guys have these slides. They're in there. This is just the data behind why cirrhosis still matters for some and not others. Not, I don't want to belabor this. Um, I will say, so if you look at the newest regimen, soft valpatosphere, um, these are tiny numbers. So I think the one caveat here is there is some concern, obviously, um, as to whether or not kind of a treatment experience, cirrhotic, um, where the prior regimen of lead soft required 24 weeks and or ribavirin if you wanted to go 12. Do we have enough data a lot of data to support that this regimen doesn't need that because um, it really is a very similar regimen. And the reality is we have pretty small numbers here when you start looking at, at treatment experience patients and then treatment experience patients with cirrhosis, okay? So hopefully we'll get more data in that group. So what about patients who have failed a protease inhibitor, okay? So if you failed a prior protease inhibitor, you are mostly looking at using a protease inhibitor sparing regimen, which is what these guys are. But the Elbisvir-Grzoprovir regimen, so again, Grzoprovir really being a next generation protease inhibitor, um, this is an option. So this is actually great. Patients have failed, you know, a Tilapavir pegriba, a Sumavir pegriba, a pegriba, a soft pegriba. Um, you have a pretty good option here in, in that setting for 12 weeks, right? Um, again, you throw in patients with cirrhosis and it gets a little uglier, okay? It gets a little longer. So again, in terms of cirrhotic patients, right now with these regimens, they may need something more. And that's why making that a diagnosis of cirrhosis is so very important. 
So what about people who have failed either SimSoft, which a lot of people were using before we had right approved combinations of DAAs, or an NS5A um, inhibitor experienced patient? So how many of you out there have a SimSoft or a DAXOF or a LEDSOFT or a prod failure? Yeah, so this, you know, 97% is really high, but that means 3%. Right, so we all have these folks in our clinics. So it's tough because we don't have a lot of data. You can defer and wait until salvage regimens are approved. So if you look at the four regimens that are moving forth in the phase three trials and or into approvals, three of them are salvage, full on salvage regimens. In fact, going the path by the FDA of salvage, right? So you could wait on that, a true triple salvage regimen because it's pretty hard to get a salvage regimen from an insurer right now, right? My practice is also in the VA, where we actually have 13, 14 patients right now on salvage regimens. Um, so we can actually get those in the VA. I think it's much harder um, with, a, with a private insurer. So there's recommendations for testing for both NS3 and NS5A resistance, and then essentially making a decision based on that um, for treatment. And if you can get your hands on a triple or a quad salvage regimen, then maybe you can go 12 weeks depending on what you can get your hands on and where the data is. And if you can't, then you probably need to go 24, okay? So there is guidance here for these patients. Um, I call this the kitchen sink approach. Um, so you basically look at you know, where the holes are and get everything you can, add some ribavirin, go for 24 weeks, you know, go as long as you can, because this time you really need to get it right. Right, because if they fail again, now maybe you only had NS3 resistance. Now you have NS5 as well. Right, so this is a pretty big deal, and Dr. Wiles is going to talk about what that means and, and how that plays out. So this is the evidence behind the various salvage options. Again, all I'm going to say is there are options: the Swift, the C Swift, the Quartz, the Softvel study um, that are anywhere from 12 to 24 weeks. They all include ribavirin. They're all triple or quad regimens. Um, but you have this as a reference, as an option, um, in terms of making that decision once you have your NS3 and NS5A resistance testing, trying to pick the one where you have the most activity, right? Um, and so this is an option if you have a patient who really needs to get therapy now and can't wait for FDA-approved salvage regimens. So genotype 2. I'm going to very quickly go through the other genotypes. Um, because it actually has gotten simpler. So Geno2 is actually pretty straightforward, as you can see, regardless of whether or not someone has cirrhosis, right? Treatment naive, we have one preferred regimen. It's one pill once a day. Um, treatment experience peg riba, one preferred regimen. We also have an alternative regimen. Uh, but you can see once you get into cirrhosis with that alternative regimen, the lengths of therapy are getting to be 16 to 24 weeks, mostly because of a general lack of data in this patient population. And once you get into soft riba failures, you have two options. One is 12, one is 24, um, and they do include the, the adding ribavirin. Right, So th this is great for genotype 2 patients because the soft riba kind of question mark and whether cirrhotic exceeded 16 or 24 weeks is now gone. And that regimen has been removed, um, which is great for the vast majority of these patients. Right? So I'm not going to belabor that point. So NS5A testing is recommended for all genotype 3 patients listed below except. So basically, one of these is wrong. Which one of these populations does not require NS5A testing? for a genotype 3 patient. Oh, 
All right, good. So we can focus on this. So treatment-naive patients with cirrhosis do have a recommendation of NS5A testing. Treatment experience without cirrhosis do have a recommendation for NS5A testing for genotype 3 patients. It is, in fact, the hardest to treat treatment experience with cirrhosis where we do not recommend NS5A testing. Why? Anyone know? Because we automatically say give them ribavirin. Regardless of their NS5A test, these patients are hard to treat. Give them the kitchen sink, essentially, right? Um, so this is where we are, and this is, I wanted to focus on this, and then I'm going to leave the terminology, et cetera, and, and more of the data behind it up to David um, or to Dr. Wiles. But you can see here that for treatment naives, soft alpatosphere, DAC, soft, and this little asterisk says check NS5A resistance. Add ribavirin if the Y93 is present, okay? Um, same thing here, right? Same thing for treatment experience peg riba patients. Um, and then when you get into the treatment experience patients, see, that ribavirin is there. You're not going to treat this patient population without it. Is this outside of what the FDA recommends? Absolutely. Okay? Um, do we feel the guideline, you know, has the responsibility of applying the data? And, uh, and even though these are tiny, tiny numbers, so I'm going to show you um, the data for this. Tiny, tiny numbers, right? So in blue is the soft VEL patients in genotype 3. In red um, is the, was, the, was the control arm, which was the prior standard of care, soft RIBA, for 24 weeks. So don't really focus on the red, focus on the blue. Non-serotic, treatment naive non-serotics, 98% cure. They just get 12 weeks, so they're good to go, right? But every other group, treatment naive with cirrhosis, 93%, three failures. Treatment experience without cirrhosis, three failures, 91%. Treatment experience with cirrhosis, four failures, 89%, right? These are no longer acceptable numbers, right? We need to be above 95%. And if you look at the primary predictor, it is NS5A resistance, okay? Small numbers, I get it, but we have to do the best we can. So, so NS5A testing here and here, give ribavirin if the Y93 is there. In this group, just give them ribavirin because they are an extremely difficult to treat group, okay? All right, so five and six, you've got two options, 12 weeks. It's pretty straightforward. Um, all right, so I have four more minutes. Awesome. Um, so I think I have two or three slides left. Uh, so one is renal impairment and post-renal transplant. There's a whole section here. Uh, treatment should always be discussed with a nephrologist. I think this is number one. If a patient has severe kidney disease or is on dialysis, the first question you should ask is, are you on the transplant list? Are, you, are they considering you for transplant? For the most of those patients, they do not want to be cured until after the transplant so that they can get a hep C positive organ, okay? So you've got to have this conversation with the nephrologist and work with them to understand which is better for the patient because you can treat these patients. You can treat them before, you can treat them after. And for some of these patients, they can get an organ a lot quicker if they can take a hep C positive organ. I don't know if you guys know this, but the first study in the United States is actually looking at giving hep C positive kidneys to people without hep C. That's amazing, right? That's amazing, and it's, and it's going on right now. Um, so GFR, if a patient has a GFR greater than 30, you can use any of these regimens, okay? Except for the regimens where there is ribavirin, you have to dose-reduce the ribavirin, all right? So ribavirin, once you get below a GFR of 50, requires dose reduction based on the GFR, but the DAAs do not. So you have a lot of range, right, for patients to use your regimens that you want to use. But once you get to less than 30 or patients with end-stage renal disease, there's only one approved regimen, and that is the Elbis, Elbisvir-Grisoprovir regimen, okay? 
The guidelines do not recommend NS5A testing in this group because the large trial that looked at this group did not see a difference based on NS5A testing. Again, different than what we recommend in people who don't have end-stage renal disease or severe kidney disease and different than what the FDA recommends, which is NS5A testing in everyone. Okay? Um, we, we do still struggle with what to do with patients who have 2, 3, 5, and 6, where the recommended regimens include cefospivir, which is not approved in patients with severe kidney disease and for which we have minimal data. Okay? And then post-transplant, a very nice large study showed that Ledsoff for 12 weeks without ribavirin cured 100%. Okay? 97%, but I think that the one that was out was not a virologic failure. So this is really exciting. Really exciting for this patient population. I did want to mention acute because I know we're all seeing acute. This is a big deal. We're seeing it in our HIV-positive MSM. We're seeing it in patients who use drugs. Um, the guidelines recommend still to treat as chronic. When you can cure at 97 98% for a chronic patient, what's the difference, right? So interestingly, the European guidelines just came out with a recommendation that you should treat all acutes with eight weeks. So they would argue that the one difference is you can actually shorten therapy in this patient population. Um, except for patients with high viral loads. And what is this based on? It's based on this study that had, I think, 20 or so patients um, of HIV-infected patients who got six weeks of therapy, and the ones who failed um, were ones who had a high viral load. Um, that's based, so it's based on a study of six weeks. There's another study of, <coughs> of six weeks <coughs> as well, sorry, where patients were very active. They, they, most of them were jaundiced. They had high liver enzymes potentially going on for spontaneous clearance. And so with those two six-week regimens, but of course, how do you get six weeks, right? I mean, the pill bottle comes with 28 and no pharmacy, right? No pharmacy is opening that bottle, right? I mean, no way, Jose. So they went eight because that's, that's the most logistically sound option, but there is no eight-week study. Um, there actually is an eight-week study. It's ACTG5327, for those of you who enrolled patients. Thank you. Um, and we will have data um, very soon, about eight weeks in this acute population in HIV patients. Um, but this is where we stand. So I think this is actually where you will see some movement maybe um, in the ASOE guidelines as well once maybe those data are available. Okay. So this is my last slide. What's coming? Dr. Wiles and his brilliance is putting out an NS5A resistance primer um, for everyone who wants to brush up on all of these concepts like you'll hear today. Um, pregnant women. So we are bringing into the guidelines some great people who focus in um, maternal health, um, child health, vertical transmission, um, and we're, fo we're going to be focusing on putting out more information for you around these populations. And then ultimately, I'm going to retire because I'm really tired because <laughs> these guidelines have been a pretty fast-paced marathon. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not retiring. Uh, all right. And that is it. One minute over. See if there, so, we can take questions later if you want. Very nice.